Almighty and everlasting God, who hatest nothing that thou hast made, and dost forgive the sins of all those who are penitent, create and make in us new and contrite hearts, that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of thee, the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right, for the, the tape, and for anybody who's lost, um, this is, Lord, please post my selfie, Lent, Confession, and How Sin Seizes Up Your Heart's Hard Drive. This is the second class on the fourth Sunday of Lent. Uh, just a couple of minutes of summary and review from where we were the last time we were together. We talked about selfies, which are, of course, self-portraits, photographs, normally made now with some mobile device or a phone. Um, and we talked about three reasons why people do this. And there's probably more than this, but these were the only three I could come up with. Um, first, uh, you remember we talked about how we uh, cannot recognize ourselves. And we went over some social research that reminded us how difficult it is for us to replicate an image of our own face. Uh, secondly, we talked about how we don't want to recognize ourselves. That is, we, we talked a little bit about how when people are given an array of photos of themselves, they invariably choose the youngest and best looking version that's been digitally uh, remastered. And then thirdly, uh, we talked about how we want to change our own recollection of our own events. That is, uh, we mentioned a, a symposium that the National Portrait Gallery in London had held called the Curated Self, a symposium about selfies, and that that was uh, one of the impulses that we have, that is that we wish to change, modify, and control our own events. So what does that have to do with confession? We touched on the same three things. First, that sin, that is us living here in a post-lapsarian world, uh, prevents us from seeing our own faces accurately in the way God does. Uh, secondly, that we want to look like something other than a sinful person in a dead world. Uh, and that we want to, thirdly, curate our own lives rather than have God do it. And that, that struck me as being somewhat uh, analogous to what the dean was uh, mentioning in his sermon this morning where we often uh, would rather treat God as a sort of cosmic GPS system uh, and in the same way we would rather curate our own lives rather than uh, let him do it. And, and we talked about why we're doing this course that is a selfie is more natural to us than confession and the point of confession is that it's a recognition of sin, right, because we don't recognize sin, there's nothing to confess and that when we recognize sin, we're freed up for grace, and grace saves us from death. Okay, that's the summary. When we got done, and we were talking about these fa this faces business a lot, and something was kind of bothering me about it, and it finally dawned on me, that C.S. Lewis's last novel was called Until We Have, uh, Till we Have Faces. It was published in 1956 or so. Okay. And, until We Have Faces is a retelling of a myth, the myth of Cupid and Psyche. And the, the novel gets its title from a line where a character, actually uh, Psyche's older sister, says, 
Uh, I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer. Why should they, that is the gods, hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? Uh, so in the context of the re retelling of a pagan myth, uh, Lewis is, is making the same point. That is, the problem that sin introduces, that we cannot know our own faces, is also the same thing that keeps us from, from God. And I suggest that the one thing we should consider and, and pray about this week is how sin disables us from seeing our own faces and then what role confession might have in that regard. Okay. I've, I've, this, uh, this morning I've come up with some, like some practice tips, some practice pointers, so we'll see how that, how that, how that goes. All right, very briefly, when we talk about confession, maybe remember last time in the handout we went through a whole bunch of modalities of confession as acknowledgement, as description of sin, confession as expression of belief, and so forth. There's three main sort of procedural ways, though, uh, at least in our tradition, we think about confession. Uh, the, the first, uh, and maybe the most common, I mean, to the extent that any of us in here confess anything, uh, and I don't, I don't confess much, uh, but to the extent that any of us confess anything, uh, we have secret confession to God. Okay, and that is confession when we're alone, confession when we're uh, closeted with nobody but ourselves and we are in prayer with God. Secret confession to God. Um, this is critical because, as we know from Genesis on, there are no fig leaves. If you take a little, the, the handout that has uh, uh, Nucky Thompson on the front, right, the guy from Boardwalk Empire, uh, that starts us off in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. This is the genesis, not to pun the word, of secret confession to God because the covering that Adam and Eve made of fig leaves is a literal biological representation of, the, of, of our initial impulse, which of course is to cover up sin and hide it from God. Um, this doesn't work. Proverbs 28 verse 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them right, so just a double, double whammy, will obtain mercy. But the point is, even if we could cover sin, which we can't, um, the, the, uh, the, the outcome would be poor. Uh, Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniqu iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And this is all going to be known in the end anyway. Uh, Luke 12, verses 2 to 3. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. 
Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetop. So covering is a huge failure. And the way we get out from under that failure is secret confession to God. Now, there's almost, almost always at least two objections to this, and there's probably more. One objection you might hear is, well, I'm not particularly sinful. Yes, I have these character flaws, and there's, I have regrets, and there's things that I've done, uh, but I, I, I really don't have anything to cover up, or I, nothing really bad to cover up anyway. Um, I think when we say that, or when we hear people say that to us, they're saying one of two things, or we're saying one of two things. One is, um, there is no such thing as sin, at least in the way that the Bible talks about it. There may be bad things, but uh, the, the person is saying, I don't really believe in sin, or a condition of sin, sort of capital S, in the first place. Or, they're saying, or if we're the one saying it, we're saying, well, I'm ethical, I have a code of ethics, and I, in the main, subscribe to that, and I, I comply with that. I'm an ethical person, and so there is no need to confess anything if, if, one, is, if, if one is ethical. Um, the first response is, is not true. That is to say, I am not sinful, or there is no such thing as capital S sin, because even just from common experience, we live in a broken world, we're broken people. So sort of the empirical evidence of our, <clears throat> of our condition overwhelms that. And then the second is just sort of irrelevant. In other, words, in other words, clearly a sinful person, which encompasses everybody, can also be ethical. Right? I mean, there, there, are, there are millions and millions and millions of perfectly ethical sinful people. So they say it is, it, it is not an accurate description to say, well, uh, um, because I'm ethical, Right. There is no need of confession of sin. Uh, the second or a second objection to the secret confession business is, well, God already knows my sins. I mean, he's God. So uh, it's, not like, it's not like he's waiting on an email every Monday morning with a catalog of my sin. He knows this already. So what's the, what's the, what's the purpose? Um, the response to that is, that is true. God is omniscient, so he, 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 he knows both your condition of sin, right, capital S, and your discrete individual sins, lowercase s. But, two things, and this goes back to covering up or uncovering sins. First, when we attempt to cover sin, God is blocked, effectively, from forgiving them. Not because he is not omnipotent, not because he lacks the power to do so, but because we are not freed up to receive that. And secondly, if we catalog them, if we identify them, we make it, when we uncover them, we make it actually more likely that we will forsake them in the future, right? And that was what uh, reading in, I'm sorry. Proverbs 28, verse 13, he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So when we catalog our sins in secret confession to God, we take and are freed up to take a step in that 
in that in that direction. Um, so a, here's a helpful practice point, uh, which is that with regard to secret confession to God, we can do this any time, right? We don't have to wait to Sunday. It's not like we have to carry around, you know, three by five card and say, and then and then sort of and then sort of load up the howitzer and then let them let them go on on Sunday. Um, confession, especially secret confession, which we know the best, right? Because it's, it's ours and it's secret; nobody else knows it. Uh, can be made anytime, anywhere, and all the time. So it should be prompt, and it should be detailed. In other words, the temptation, so to speak, is always to say, "Lord, please forgive my sins." Amen. Um, that's not particularly helpful to you. It's not particularly helpful to God even though he, he knows them all, because there is no effect. What we want to do is catalog. Right? First, it has the uncovering effect and the benefits from that that we've already gone through. And secondly, it assures us that we recognize sin, we, 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 that we grasp the specificity of what we have done or what we have left undone. All right, so that's secret confession to God. That's what most of us do if we confess things at all. In many senses, it's the easiest thing to do. It's the most familiar thing to do because it just involves us and just involves God. The other, another big sort of procedural mode of confession is private confession. Not secret confession, but it's private confession to another person. This involves a different principle, right? Secret confession to God concerns or treats the relationship between me and God. Right? We're the only two parties. It's a very vertical relationship. Private confession to another person is horizontal. It treats what? A relationship, right? but it's a relationship between me and someone else that I have wronged or sinned against by some act or by some failure to act, by some word or by some deed. And if we look back to the handout, if we look to Isaiah uh, chapter 1, verses 13 to 17, first we see that a right relationship to God is not possible without a right relationship to other people. We can't skip a right relationship to other people and bank on a right relationship to God. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, bring, this is, this is God chewing out Israel. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So God is saying, stop all this liturgical symbolism in your effort to build a direct relationship to me because you have failed to establish a right relationship in society. Um, and 
Um, Jesus was very explicit about this, Matthew 5:23 and following, uh, that if we have done something or failed to do something to our neighbor, uh, we are to confess it to him in private before we take care of our own business in church, Matthew 5, verses 23 to 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. This, obviously, is much more difficult than just lifting up a prayer to God that only you and God know anything about. Uh, plus, it's also difficult, I think, as a practical matter, sometimes to, to figure out, okay, will my approach to the person I have wronged actually in some way make the situation worse or not cause the redemptive or graceful effect that I had, I had hoped? Um, John Stott, who I think probably many of you have, have read or, or listened to, has a great book about confession called, very directly, Confess Your Sins. Um, and Stott says, The rule is always that secret sins must be confessed secretly to God, and private sins must be confessed privately to the injured party. But this is a much more difficult step and uh, one that requires itself, I think, prayer before undertaking it. And then finally, the third big procedural mode, which is even more fraught with potential craziness, is public confession to the church. Right? We've got secret confession to God, we've got private confession to another individual, then we have public confession to the church. That is to say, confession of sins, of wrongs, of omissions against the church, against the body corporate, which then entails what? Questions of, of discipline, right? The most historically common one being excommunication or separation from the, 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 the church. This is a different thing now than what we say in the general confession. That is a corporate confession, but it's at a very high level of applicability. I was about to say generality, but that's, that's kind of repetitive. It's a high level of applicability. We are still talking about our sins against God. We're still talking about our sins against our fellow man. What we're, what we're really not, or at most kind of the glancing blow in the general confession, is we're not really talking about sins against the church, against the corporate body of which we are a member. And of course, if you think that confession to the person you have wronged is potentially difficult, public confession with regard to acts or missions of the church is even more fraught with, with danger. Um, the point, and Stott, Stott describes this well, he says, the public acknowledgement to the church of some public offense against the church, so that the offender may be publicly forgiven and restored by the church. Without it, he should be and remains publicly excommunicated. Okay, so the question, and, and Stott points this out, and I think the question to ask when you're in these situations, and I've never been in one, whether for better or for worse, and that may be some theological failing of my own, or whatever, but I've never been in a situation like this. But I think if we find ourselves faced with this kind of situation, the question to ask is, is the church edified 
by this kind of public confession or not. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 28, Paul, St. Paul asks, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Okay. So this last form of confession, if it's to be engaged in, the first and, and, and really only question we, we ask is, um, uh, is it edifying to, for the church? Because if it's not, then it's positively unbiblical, it's po- positively unscriptural, and will only uh, 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 act to emphasize as opposed to relieve sin. All right, public confession puts us in mind, though, of secular confession. And when we hear the word confession, this is what we really tend to think about. And this is what is one of the more curious aspects of confession generally, because confession goes on in the world, in the secular world, all the time, every day, 24-7. Okay? And it goes on in, in three main ways, through the media, through uh, uh, art, uh, and through what I call therapy. That's probably, the, that's probably a prejudicial word to lump it into. But those are the three ways it happens every day, all day, right? Media, art, and therapy. So media, that's the easy one. Um, did anybody watch Lance Armstrong's interview with Oprah, right? Or uh, A-Rod's confession, as it were, about um, uh, steroid use? Um, um, uh, Ted Koppel in the Nightline show uh, used to be a vehicle for, for this. We live in a culture where, with, at least with regard to famous persons, we'll get to unknown persons in a second, but w- at least with regard to famous persons, that when there is an act or an omission that is perceived to be wrong or unethical or unprofessional or just weird, right, the path that person is expected to take is one of public revelation, public acknowledgement, and then then what exactly? We're not sure. Right? Saying I'm sorry, or saying yes, I realize that was that that was that was weird. Um, you know, there there are uh, there there are also people who resist this. You know, Woody Allen has never gone on a show and talked about you know the 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 claims by his you know stepdaughter or whatever. There are people who resist it, but in general, most people go and and do this, um, and there it is a. It's a non-confession in a way because what, what, the, what the famous person is really talking about is themselves. Right? There's, no, uh, there's at most a horizontal relationship at most. There's no verticality to it. Um, and then with uh, non-famous persons, it's even more rampant because we have you know, reality shows. The entire premise of a reality show is, is confessional. This is what I really do. And in fact, if things are not done that are wrong and revealed in the reality show, it gets canceled because it's, it's, it's boring, right? It's, it's, it's boring. 
So on MTV, you know, The Challenge, uh, uh, 16 and Pregnant, right? These are confessions. Yes. Um, and of course, there is a subgenre of, of, of this confessional impulse, which goes to, uh, takes the form of, of a sort of advice giving. Right? Dr. Phil. Right? I just checked. I didn't watch them. I just checked last week's Dr. Phil shows. Right? Three. Um, I fear my daughter will be kidnapped and forced into sex trafficking. Wedding day disaster. A family torn apart. Fighting fiancés. Ready for the altar or running for the hills. And then a fourth. Fat, furious, and fed up. Well, who isn't, really? <laughs> and then, uh, and we don't have time to go into this, but if you go to Oprah.com, it is a labyrinthine world of this. It is just breath. I mean, we could spend weeks, weeks on that. I mean, all audio, video, course books, um, but I commend it to you. But so what, but what, is, what is happening here? First, of course, we're getting a big old dollop of what we all enjoy, which is a combination of voyeurism and exhibitionism. Um, secondly, we are, whether it's the famous person with Oprah or the unfamous person on 16 and Pregnant, we are what? We're trying to get past whatever the presenting event is, hopefully in an entertaining fashion, right? But we're getting past it. Um, and uh, we're, we're trying to, supposedly anyway, better the situation, right? And in fact, on the website for 16 and Pregnant, there's all these social studies that say that since 16 and Pregnant started airing, actually the incidence of teen pregnancy has dropped. I question the causal relationship, but you know, nevertheless. So we're trying to get to something better within ourselves. So in media... We do this all the time, but we do it in a way that's guaranteed to fail because at best, it's all vertical, and most of it actually is, is not even vertical. It's actually a U-turn. It's turned back inward to the confessing person, to A-Rod, to Lance, to uh, the guest on, on Dr. Phil, right? It's a U-turn back in, inward, and the Bible teaches us that... Uh, and as Jesus said, we are what? Why did sepulchers? There's nothing in there that's going to help. All right, so that's media. Um, confession as art. There was a time until about, I don't know, 60 or 80 years ago, where art, whether fiction, poetry, film, was not particularly confessional. It told stories, but it was not particularly about I. There was not a lot of me in it. Okay? Part of this was because of, I think cultural mores. I mean, there was you know the Hayes Code for films and that sort of stuff. Um, but after World War II, like a lot of things, that started to change. And one thing that uh, started to uh, appear in sort of the late 1950s, early 1960s, was a uh, school of, of poems, of poets uh, called the Confessional Poets. And I imagine. Uh, uh, 
few, if any, uh, listening or in this room have great fluency with them, and that's a happy thing because it was, in general, a miserable period in, in American poetry. Um, Sylvia Plath, some of you may remember her from high school. She wrote a novel called The Bell Jar that a long time ago was on sort of mandatory high school reading list. Uh, Sylvia Plath was a confessional poet, and it dealt with uh, um, uh, death, trauma, depression, suicide. Uh, some of you, if you remember the bell jar, uh, Plath herself committed suicide uh, by turning on the gas oven and sticking her head in it. All right, so, um, but the whole premise was, I'm going to tell you about me. Okay, and I'm going to reveal to you um, uh, the, 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 the worst things in my existence. That, that's the, that's the, sort of the artistic premise. Okay? So, perversely, this impulse does satisfy the uncovering piece. Right? Sylvia Plath, Ted Hughes, Robert Lowell, all these folks, they weren't covering up anything, that's for sure. Absolutely, they were covering up nothing. In fact, they were putting it on a pedestal and saying this is not only... Um, uh, unvarnished, this is the only thing that's real. Right? Me, the I-ness of, that, that's the only thing that's, that's, that's real. Okay? Um, they even made a movie. I never saw this movie. They even made a movie about Sylvia Plath. I could not, I, I, I would, I mean, I hadn't seen it. It would make me stick my head in, in the oven, I would think. But, <laughs> but uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and Daniel Craig, I mean, Paltrow played Sylvia Plath and Daniel Craig played Ted Hughes, who was her husband and also a, 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 a poet. Um, uh, but the, 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 I think the point is, and we still see echoes of this today in memoir, which we're about to get to, that yes, they did a great job of uncovering the sin, but there is no prospect of mercy. In other words, there is no place but the, but the oven. In other words, you can, I mean, you, can, you, can, you can write volumes and volumes and volumes uncovering yourself, but according to Plath, there is no place to go but into the oven. Right? Because there is no externality once you've finished uncovering yourself that's going to save you. Okay, so again, it's, it's something of a U-turn back into her own heart. Um, you know, today, a sort of sissy version of that is memoir. I don't know if anybody's kind of noticed this, but over about the last 15 years, memoir has gotten very popular. I mean, it used to be back in you know, the 19th century. Yes, I mean, I, you know, the early 20th century. I mean, you know, Winston Churchill wrote memoirs, right? I mean, Benjamin Disraeli wrote memoirs. I mean, General Patton wrote memoirs. Well, actually, he didn't, he didn't write memoirs. He got killed before he wrote memoirs. But I mean, guys like that wrote memoirs, right? I mean, sort of, sort of public people. Now, you know, the, you know, the, science, the soup Nazi, the, the Seinfeld guy, has got, got a memoir. You know, everybody writes memoirs. And it's a very popular. In fact, it's gotten so popular, there's even a book. You remember, the, you know, these, these books, uh, A Dummy's Guide to, right? You know, there's a, there's a dummy's guide to writing your, your memoirs by a guy named Ryan Van Cleve. Um, there's a couple of problems with this. One, I mean, with theology, most people's lives are not even remotely sufficiently interesting to hear anything about, right? Not even, not even close, but set that aside. Um, 
What's a, what's a memoir? It's a sophisticated selfie. That's all it is. It's a sophisticated selfie rendered in uh, uh, letters of the alphabet instead of an image. That's all it is. It's a printed effort to curate yourself. Okay? Because a memoir, unlike an autobiography, is by definition selective. An autobiography is just supposed to be kind of the facts, ma'am. Whereas a memoir, by definition, is your imposition on the facts or unfacts or fantasies or whatever, whatever of your own life. <clears throat> memoir, I mean, it's literally your memory. It's not the thing it, itself. Now, there's, I mean, there's, now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with a memoir. I mean, you know, St. Augustine, Confessions, right? That's a memoir. But there's a difference. Who ultimately is the curator? When St. Augustine wrote what we now read and is now titled as Confessions, um, yes, it is a memoir in the sense that he is looking back on his his, sinful youth in Carthage and so on and so forth, that sort of thing. Um, But there is no question that God is the curator of Augustine's life and that he desires no other curation. That what he is in fact fleeing from his efforts as a young man to curate his own life. And then finally, uh, I think the other big sort of mode of confession, of secular confession, is, is what I lump in as therapy. You know, psychoanalysis, counseling, life coaches, uh, my, my mother is 89 years old. She lives at Mount Royal Towers. They have a life coach, right? <laughs> Mom was like, I'm 89. Not a whole lot of life left to coach, right? Um, and I, and I want to be, be clear. It is absolutely the case that, that properly applied, good counseling, good therapy, good analysis, good coaching, all help people. Absolutely. Um, and it's often appropriate and often necessary. Um, but usually, not always, but usually it's not biblical. It doesn't have anything to do that we're talking about here today. Because usually it is designed to get at, a, at what? A realization of what? Of the self. It is, it, is, it is designed to bring myself into some particular condition that the, the therapist or I uh, want the self to be in. So it's self-realization usually, not God-realization. Um, and also, it usually assumes the problem, whatever my presenting problem is to my therapist or to my life coach, is a problem that in fact can be fixed. Okay, because and 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 it would it would not be a very uh, profitable psychoanalyst or counselor or life coach who says, "Man, that's a problem. We can't do anything about that. That that sucks. Wow." He or she is not going to be in business for very long if the goal is to fix the problem and for me to realize my self. Right? So it's like our own Gil Cracky. You know, when he 
counsels people. Uh, Gil, Gil told me he almost never tells anybody what to do or what not to do. Right? Because, and, and I think that that is, and I'm sure that's frustrating for many people because we all, in that situation, we want a list. We want some boxes to check off so that when we get to the bottom of the list, I've got an actualized, realized self, and my problem is fixed. But, of course, we know, because Scripture tells us, that it can't be fixed. Right? That's why I, I put the, 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 the picture in the quote from Nucky Thompson. Nucky, as you probably all know, is the protagonist, the lead character of an HBO series, I think this is the fifth season, uh, called Boardwalk Empire, uh, mainly about Atlantic uh, City uh, in, the, in, in the Prohibition era. Nucky is the treasurer of Atlantic County, New Jersey, but in reality, uh, he, he controls the political machine and, and he's a gangster. And sort of the, the coda for the whole series occurs uh, in the first episode where Nicky is the treasurer of Atlantic County, but he's also kind of half a gangster and, and Prohibition's getting going, so he's going to get into the, the, liquor, the liquor business. And a young man says, uh, uh, you can't be half a gangster, Nucky. Not anymore, because Prohibition is starting and so forth. Uh, so Nucky's a whole gangster, and in that sense, we are wholly sinful. We are, we are as unsuccessful uh, with these other secular strategies as Nucky is unsuccessful being half a gangster. And he only takes off when essentially he admits, yep, I'm wholly a gangster. I'm wholly in. Okay, I mean, that causes all kind of other problems, which is why you got five seasons of the show. But, but the, 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 the theological point, the confessional point, is that um, biblical confession is appropriate because it does acknowledge we are all a gangster, 100%. You know, John Calvin, totally depraved. Uh, the secular modalities that we've been talking about don't recognize that, and that's why they always uh, fail us. Uh, we will end the lesson there, and we will pick up next week with confession and secrecy and uh, uh, 24, justified and dirty hairy. Praise be to God.